the Southern Hills Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas. Started preaching there three years ago in 2014. Graduated from ACU several years ago. Um, he's married to Lauren, which we've gotten to know this evening. And uh, they have two beautiful young daughters who came with them and are looking forward to seeing the Alamo tomorrow. So we're excited for them. I have looked forward all summer to hearing Jared. And so, Jared, come and talk to us about standing for the city. Uh, I, I just want to thank uh, everyone for the welcome uh, that I've already received this evening. It's, it's always a blessing to uh, get to travel some uh, and yet feel at home uh, with a room full of almost entirely new people. And I'm always reminded of what a blessing the gift of church family really is. Uh, and so Lauren and I want to thank you for this opportunity tonight. I have always wrestled with fear. Uh, and I've always struggled with facing my fear. Uh, growing up, one of the, the central stories I remember where I was really struggling with my fear, I grew up uh, on the West Coast in Northern California, uh, and, and my dad had taken me and my two sisters to a public pool, and I didn't realize that he'd had a plan the whole time, and this particular public pool had one of the highest high dives around. Uh, and he knew that I was never going to want to go on that. But we get there, and he lets me swim in, you know, the safe, normal-sized pool for a while with my friends. And he kind of lets me get comfortable. Uh, and then he calls out to me uh, across the chlorinated water, Jared, come here, come here. The high dive's about to open, and today's the day you're going on it. And I turn around for some backup for my friends, and they're gone. They've, they've already they've disappeared into the pool. And so I'm looking around for the one person who I know can rescue me from this man who wants me to be a man more than anything else in that moment. I'm looking for my mommy, right? Because she can tell him, no, Jared can't handle that. He's, he, no, don't do that to him. I'm looking around everywhere, and I can't see her. I can't find her. And so I let my, my dad pull me up out of the pool take me over to that, the high dive line. There's always a line, and it's all, I was contemplating what I hadn't already accomplished in my 10, 10 or 11 years of life. Uh, and this was, this was all coming to an abrupt end. And I, I need you to see me at that point in my life. I was smaller and skinnier than I am right now, and I was wearing red swimming trunks that were two sizes too big. So I had them cinched as tight as I could at my waist, but I basically looked like I was wearing a big wet dress. And I'm in line, and I'm shivering, and I'm cold, and I'm looking around for my mom. She's nowhere to be found. And so finally, the, the teenager in front of me is already going up the ladder. And it doesn't matter that several kids have jumped off the high dive, and they've all survived. I know that I'm not going to. So I'm climbing up the, the ladder. I pass some clouds on the way up, at least in my imagination. In my imagination, I get up there. And I do what every Christian kid does when they're facing something they really don't want to face. I pray for Jesus to come back <laughs> right then, right? Because if he does, I won't have to, to go through with this. I prayed and prayed and prayed, and uh, we're all still here, so you know how that went. And finally, I take a deep breath, and I run and throw myself out into the air. Now, while I'm falling, I start to realize that I'm kind of rotating 
in ways that, and, and I start worrying. And so I'm flapping my little bird arms as much as I can. I'm trying to fill up my trunks with air. All of this is not helping as I'm getting closer to the water. And I don't just do a belly flop. The, every square inch of the front of my body just slams into that water. Uh, and I realize I really am going to die. Right? And, and as soon as I drag myself out of that pool, my mother comes walking up. And I was so angry for so long at her for, for doing that to me. And I hear my dad say, it's time to go again. Said, You've got to be kidding me. Right? Now, when you're a kid, you tell stories like that or you go through stories like that and you use the word, I was afraid. I was scared. But for some reason, as we get older, we come up with different words for being afraid and scared because we really don't want to use those words. So I'm stressed out, I'm anxious, I'm worried, I feel cornered, I feel like I don't have any options. Those are all very real emotions, but at their core, they're fear. And we have a hard time, even in church, talking about our fear. And of all the stories in the Old Testament that really tapped into my fear, especially as a, as, a, as a kid, but even now, is the story of Daniel and the lion's den. I mean, that story, if a Sunday school teacher told that story to me, it followed me from Bible class. It sat next to me on the pew during worship. It rode home with me in the family minivan. It haunted my thoughts all afternoon, and it made it where I couldn't go to sleep that night because I just kept seeing these flashing teeth in the moonlight. And I wasn't just afraid of high dives at that point in my life. I was afraid of all kinds of things. I was afraid of strange dogs in our neighborhood. I was even, let's be really honest, I was afraid of kittens at that point in my life. I had cornered a cat once, and it had tore me up, just scratched my arms, and it took me weeks to get better. And at that point in my life, all it took was a cat to kind of lunge at me playfully. And I was screaming at the top of my lungs and running outside of whatever house we were in. And so for a Bible class teacher to tell me a story where this man of faith is, is forced to spend a night in this deep, dark cave surrounded by hungry lions, I just couldn't, I could not get myself to understand how anybody could have that kind of courage. How anybody could stand up for what they believed when that's what was being threatened. And I, I remember thinking about Daniel and how afraid, it didn't matter how old he was, how afraid he had to be. And I remember talking to God about it and, and just praying that if, I know that I couldn't actually get into that story with Daniel, but I'd like to believe, and I would pray to God, if I'm ever in a situation like that where somebody's facing something like that, would you please give me the courage to stand with them? I mean, I knew I couldn't do it for Daniel. He'd already done it. And, and I knew I couldn't do it instead of Daniel, but there was always a part of me that wanted to believe that I could stand with Daniel. And maybe, maybe God could help me do that. When the Babylonians come in and conquer the armies of Judah and the, the city of Jerusalem falls, a, a new world is ushered in. And if Daniel wants to have a place in that new world, he needs to forget everything that's come before and he needs to just focus on the future. Or that's exactly what his new Babylonian masters are telling him. Just forget the past, 
Focus on the future. Focus on what, uh, what, what's out there for you that you can take a hold of. They notice very quickly that Daniel is gifted, that he's young and bursting with potential, and they need him on their side. And they know somehow that the best way to help somebody, to, to be somebody you can use, is to get them to forget who they really are. To forget their true identity. And then you replace it with something else, right? You replace it with whatever you want that to be. So they take away Daniel's old name and they give him a new name, Belteshazzar. They replace his, his language, Hebrew, that he knows by heart, and they give him new language that he's got to learn. They replace the stories that he knows of Abraham and Moses and Deborah and Ruth, and they tell him new stories about their great men and women in their history. But no matter how hard they try, the Babylonian leaders fail to make Daniel forget who he really is. They fail to confuse him about what really matters. They fail to erase his conviction that the true king he serves isn't the king of Babylon, it's Yahweh, the king of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Daniel's true king watches over him, giving him wisdom and insight, even the ability to interpret dreams that nobody else can understand. He's able to, to talk about the future, the events that are going to happen long before they unfold. These amazing gifts that God gives to Daniel make him even more important and valuable to the Babylonian leaders, who are just, they just seem unstoppable. Over the years, as he continues to serve them, and as his true king blesses him in that service, they... They continue to promote him. But as they do that, they start to create this long list of enemies because there are countless other people in the Babylonian Empire who want the same position of power and influence that Daniel holds. And they'll do anything to get him out of their way. But no matter how hard they search for it, they can't find any dirt on him. Can you imagine? No matter how hard they look, they can't find anything. No scandals. No lies. No, no telling this person one thing that they want to hear and telling someone else something they want to hear. They try to figure out what they can do, but Daniel is truly who he appears to be. He is a good man. He is a man of God through and through. He is trustworthy and wise and caring. And once they realize this, you'd, you'd hope when you're hearing the story for the first time or reading it for the first time, that once they realize, okay, this is a good man, he's trustworthy and wise and caring, they think, well, the right person has the right job. Right? That, that the best man is in that position. And so I, I need to have a sense of... of of understanding what's at stake here and to step away from it and leave Daniel alone. But you know that's not how this story's going to go. Because in a, in a cutthroat, competitive, dog-eat-dog world, anybody can figure out how to turn an obstacle into an opportunity. Anybody who wants to think about it hard enough can figure out how to, how to turn a challenge into a chance. And so they just look harder. They dig a little deeper, and what they start to find out is he prays every single day to his true king without fail. And if you look into the commentaries and if you do some research into how people traditionally prayed at that time, 
it was very different than how you and I tend to pray, especially when we're alone. Uh, this is basically what, what the best guess we have of how Daniel would have prayed every day. He would have gone into his, the, the place where he lived. He would have gone to some windows that faced Jerusalem. He would have knelt down and he would cry out to the Lord out loud. This wasn't silent prayer in the car on the way to work. That's fine. But that's not the kind of daily prayer that Daniel's involved in. That's why other people are so, it's what they notice, right? When they're following him around and they see what his schedule's like and how he spends his time, they actually witness him praying. So for us, what would be a private prayer is both private and public for Daniel. They find out that he's doing this and they have a plan. So they go to Darius, the reigning king of the Babylonian Empire. Now this gets a little tricky. Uh, if you've ever read through Daniel, you'll find that the, the leaders are always changing as, as time goes on. So it's still the Babylonian Empire, but now there's new kings. And these other kings of the Babylonian Empire are actually from the Medes and the Persians. Okay, so Darius is running the empire, but he's, he's, a new, uh, he's part of this new wave of leadership. And they come to him and they say, hey... Um, we got this idea. You need to write a law where for the next 30 days, anybody within the bounds of your empire, right? And this is the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at the time. Anybody. So almost everybody. If they're going to pray, they have to pray to you. They can't pray to anyone or anything else for 30 days. What does that sound like? Well, Darius, Darius is like most global leaders, he likes it when you treat him like a god. Right? So if you tell him, hey, what do you think about this law? He says, that sounds great to me. Where do I sign? And, and what we... Now, here's, here's the irony, right? That the person who's telling us the story of Daniel wants us to understand. You have to be as powerful as anybody's ever been to write a law like that and force it into existence, Right? You've got to have a sense of just how powerful Darius is to be able to do this. And then you've got to understand the irony in the story is, once he puts it into writing, the most powerful man in the story is powerless to change what he's just done. And he hasn't thought this through. Okay, so the storyteller tells you, as they're explaining it in Daniel, okay, once any king from the Medes and the Persians puts a decree in writing, it's over. They are powerless to take it back. It's going to play out the way he's written it. Now Daniel hears about this new law, about praying, and does the one thing he knows to do with that kind of news. He prays to God. Now, he, he doesn't stop praying the way that he had been praying. He doesn't go into a closet somewhere and close the door where he can't be observed. He doesn't start whispering where nobody else could hear him. He doesn't get away from the windows that face Jerusalem so that he's not going to have anybody see what's happening. He does exactly what he's always done when it comes to his relationship to his true king and how he speaks to that king, how he pleads to that king, how he interacts with that king. Now, at first glance, i got to be honest, it, it seems like Daniel's taking unnecessary risks. Right? There's a part of you, when you hear the story, you think, Daniel, there's, 
There's more than one way to pray. You know, and you're a good guy. You're the best guy in the story. Why would you risk your life to go in and pray the same exact way you've always been praying when that's exactly what these bad guys in the story are trying to, to get you to do? And I think there's a part of me that thinks, okay, he changes nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing about his daily prayer routine. He knows he's breaking the law. He knows he's eventually going to be caught. And there's this, I just started thinking, are you trying to teach someone a lesson? Are you, are you trying to prove some kind of point? Because in trying to prove a point, you can lose your life. Back off a little bit. Put this in perspective. But the more I think about it, I'm not sure that's really what Daniel's trying to do at all. I don't think we're just, we're opening up a story that's about a stubborn follower of God who who won't move an inch. I really don't think that's what's happening. I think we're watching a man who knows that every single day he has to fight this lifelong temptation to let the world around him change who he really is. He has to struggle every single day to remember his real name and his first language and the stories of Abraham and Deborah, and Ruth, and Moses, instead of all these other stories that he hears all the time around him. He doesn't just want to. Daniel needs to talk to God, his true king, three times a day, asking God to help him renew his commitment to being who he's been called to be, good and trustworthy, wise and caring. Daniel doesn't just need to pray. I think he needs to pray in a very certain way for a very certain reason, and that's why he's That's why he's acting this way. He needs the repetition. He needs the structure. He needs this tradition. Daniel is not trying to make a point about God. Daniel is trying to be made more and more into a godly person. We tend to go uh, into places we don't mean to go if all we're trying to do is make a point. Have you ever noticed that, especially uh, when we're interacting with people who may not share our faith? That if if the whole reason we get involved in a conversation or an interaction with someone is to make a point, uh, that rarely ends the way we want it to. But if we go into every situation, not trying to make a point, but to be made more into godly people, I think think we... We find that God works in unexpected and amazing ways when we have hearts in that kind of posture. Sure enough, Daniel gets caught praying by his political enemies. They report his illegal activity to King Darius, uh, who immediately realizes the mistake he'd made. At first, it sounded good to give somebody an all-expenses-paid, all-night stay in the royal lion's den. But now it doesn't sound so good. Because it's his friend, Daniel, who's good and trustworthy and wise and caring. And so again, the storyteller wants us to understand the irony here that the most powerful man that anybody is sharing life with at this point, the most powerful person in the story is powerless. He can't do anything to change what's about to happen to Daniel. But there is one in the story who is more than powerful enough to change what's about to happen. And it's not the king of Babylon. It's the king of heaven and earth. And so King Darius can't change it, but he can choose to trust in Daniel's God. 
So he sends Daniel into the lion's den, and he doesn't, he doesn't sleep. He, doesn't, he just paces the royal palace all night long, overcome with grief and overcome with that sense. I mean, have you ever had a night in your life where you can't sleep because you know you're powerless to change something? And you feel small, and you feel helpless? Well, King Darius is never supposed to feel that way. He gets through that long night. He runs to the lion's den. He calls out hope against hope. I mean, who could survive a night in that place? But then he hears a voice. It's Daniel's voice. And he calls out to King Darius. And the very thing that King Darius couldn't do, Daniel says, my true king was able to deliver me to rescue me, to change what was going to happen. God saves his servant from certain death, and in response to that, the most powerful man that anybody's around sends out a message to everybody in Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and people of every language in all the earth. That covers just about everybody, right? May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. I'm telling you, when I was a kid, this story would just stay with me. Because I just couldn't imagine being in that place and having the courage that Daniel has and wanting to believe that if I ever found myself in a place like that, that I would find the courage to stand with someone like Daniel. And those lions and their teeth, you know, that was the the part that always would get to me. But as a 38-year-old who's less afraid of kittens, (laughs) I find that the physical lions play a much lesser role in the story than I thought. Now, Daniel might correct me someday. They're there. I know they're there. But I think they're in the background of what's actually taking place I'm becoming more and more convinced that this story is less about finding the courage to face down dangerous animals, and it's more about finding the courage to be decidedly different from the world around us. From beginning to end, the story of Daniel is filled with this social struggle. Exile, enemies, political power plays, confusing dreams, foolish kings, fiery furnaces, a lion's den. It's all there, all of it. Coming together to construct the central struggle for Daniel. That struggle is to remember who he really is. To remember who his true king really is. This struggle to hold on to his true identity in the face of all kinds of of threats. And Daniel has asked over and over, it seems. Just forget the faith of your forefathers. Just abandon the ways of your ancestors. Just, Just forget. And Daniel courageously fights against this doubt. Decision after decision. Day after day. Daniel chooses to trust that God's kingdom really is more powerful than any other kingdom on the face of the earth. And he chooses to believe that the way God has asked him to live, to talk, to worship, to pray, that the way 
that, that God has asked him to be, it really is the best possible way to live life. That place of trusting in God against all odds, of holding onto faith and a faith-defying world, of resisting the temptation to move through life like we're fully in charge of our own lives, of submitting ourselves to God's will for us no matter where that takes us. That's the place that we're asked to join Daniel in the story. That is our lion's den. Because even though we may not be political exiles just yet, we are exiles just the same. We know what it means to live in a world where we are asked every single day in a thousand different ways to just forget that we are called to be strikingly different from the people around us who do not share our faith. We're tempted to forget that we've been called to live out a story that not only belongs to Daniel, but I believe more fully belongs to Jesus. We are tempted to forget, aren't we, that our lives should be marked by peace instead of anxiety? Even in times when it's clear that we are not in control? Our lives should be lives that express humility instead of insecurity. You and I are supposed to be resisting this constant desire for more and more power, even if we're not exactly sure what we're going to do with the power when we get it. We're trying our best to find more ways to be compassionate instead of competitive. And in a world where what we already have never seems to be enough, we're the ones working towards choosing present contentment and deep and daily gratitude. You and I, we're supposed to be reminding one another that huge success almost always gives you a smaller soul. And that relationships really are more important than anything else in the world. We're we're supposed to be the people who try our best to choose to believe that self-giving love is the most powerful force in all of creation. And that helping meet the needs of other people is our lifelong mission. We're the people who do our very best to keep our promises, not when it's easy. We keep our promises even when it's, it's harder than we ever imagined. We keep our promises especially when nobody else would keep that promise. We find a way to hold on to hope for the people around us who feel like nothing more than failures. We're supposed to be the people who will give you a second chance even if you've slipped up for the tenth time. We're brave enough to admit our own shortcomings and fears so that you can know that you're not alone feeling the way you do in your most disappointing moments. We're the people who sit in hospital rooms and we stay there even when we don't know what else to say. We'll cry with you when your life turns out to be anything but fair. We'll choose to repay harshness with kindness and selfishness with selflessness. Brothers and sisters, this is who we are. It's who we've promised to be. It's who God keeps calling us to be. And I'm afraid that enough things happen in the course of a normal week and it chips away at our ability to remember who we really are as God's people. And we make compromises that we don't realize we're making. And we don't tell the whole truth when we speak. We shade the truth. We don't admit that we've made mistakes. We shift blame to other people. We worry that we're not enough because we start to struggle with this idea 
that what, what the gospel is, is that God suddenly helps you figure out how to be good enough. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus loves you, and Jesus loves you in a way that, that transforms you into somebody who's good enough. It's not something you accomplish. It's not something that you're able to do on your own. It's something you have to believe in and trust is actually happening. And it is happening. The world may continue to tell us that if we want to make it, if we want to get ahead, if, if we want to have enough, that we're going to have to be other kinds of people than who we've promised to be. But brothers and sisters, when the world tells us that, remember this. The world is wrong. The world is wrong. May we never forget it. And may we, like Daniel before us, through our faithful differentness, that, I just made that word up, so don't look it up. Through our faithful differentness, will we show the people watching us that our lives are not about us anyway. Our lives are all about a God who has rescued us. And will rescue them if only they'll let him. Isn't that the sermon that King Darius preaches on Daniel's behalf? That our God is a God of rescue? When there is no hope, when there's nowhere else for anybody else to turn, when it looks like that but we know exactly how the story is going to unfold and it's not going to be good, God steps in and changes everything. And there's light and there's hope and there's goodness, and there's grace, and there's mercy, and there's new creation, and there's new people. You know, I think about this church, and I think about this city. And I think that in every city, that the hope for that city exists in the churches. And that it's not going to be a hope that we can beat anybody up with. It's not a hope I think we can argue somebody into believing or understanding. I think it's a hope that we prove to them is coming true in us, not because of us, but because of our true king. Right? That we show them that, that there really is a different way to live life. And we're not just theoretically describing it. We're not just saying that, that there's been some people a long time ago that managed to live this way, and, and we hope that someday in the future other people start to live this way. No, no, no. We model for them that marriages can last. We model for them that people who are enthralled to addictions and other types of struggles and darkness in their life don't have to to fight those things on their own, and they don't have to bear the name of their struggle as if it's the name God gave them. Right? That we can model, not, not argue, but we can, we can be living examples of what's possible when people trust that we are not who other people say we are. We're not even who we think we are. We're who God says we are. Dearly loved children of God who are still here so that we can love other dearly loved children of God who don't know it yet. That's the kind of church we need to be in San Antonio and in the huge metropolis of Abilene. And I promise you, if we show people what's possible, they'll come. They'll come.